Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Even though Austin is the hottest multifamily market in the country, lifelong relationships and a great reputation yields great deals, even when they're fewer and further between. Today's guest, Andrew Campbell, managing partner of Wildhorn Capital, has built an impressive 3,000-unit portfolio in Austin and San Antonio that's produced consistently strong returns for investors through cash flow and appreciation. So today we have a man based in arguably the hottest multifamily real estate market in the country. Born and raised there, and I don't know if he planned all that out, you know, if he planned where he was born to then later be in the hottest real estate market in the country, but he is, and he's doing some fantastic stuff. He is the managing partner of Wildhorn Capital, which is a company, incidentally, that I happen to have a little bit of my hard-earned money invested in, and so far, so good, but I want to introduce Andrew Campbell. Andrew, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, people always say you'd rather be lucky than good. So just lucky to be uh, lucky to be born and raised in Austin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a feeling there's some good in there, too. And, you know, I hope you liked my wind up. You know, I used to be in the radio business out of college and I was on the sales side. And, you know, uh, I, I just love hamming up these intros. I don't know if anybody actually likes them. I, they probably don't, but I, I enjoy doing it. Well, you know, so here we are, your managing partner of Wildhorn and super cool logo, by the way, from one ad guy to another. But before we get into the, you know, the Wildhorn trajectory, you know, born and raised in Austin. And so were your parents uh, native Texans or uh, how did you guys wind up there as a family and what did the family do? And, you know, that uh, kind of background. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny. It, these days in Austin, you you meet somebody. So I'm I'm 41, and if you meet anybody, you know, my age, older, mid 30s, that's front and born in Austin, they're kind of a unicorn. It's we've had so much growth, and it was it was a small town growing up. Actually, my dad was born and raised here in 1949, so we've we've got deep Austin roots. Um, you know, his parents moved here kind of after the war and worked for the university, and just you know when it was a sleepy state capital and and university town. So been been running around Austin for, you know, several generations, I guess going on damn near a hundred years. So it's again rather rather be lucky than good. No one no one at that time knew this was gonna, you know, emerge into this megatropolis with uh, that's got kind of everybody's uh, everybody's eye these days from a job and a and a moving perspective. If your grandparents then you're saying they moved and taught at the university, where'd they move from? My grandmother's from East Texas and my grandfather was from a small town kind of outside Austin. You know, I think there's a story even way back that, that my great, great, maybe great grandmother was one of the first handful of women to ever graduate from UT in, you know, 1906 or something like that. So it's, uh, we've been around Austin for, for a while. You sure have. You've got street cred in, in Austin <laughs> for sure. So when you went to UT, did you live on campus or were you in a fraternity? Did you live at home or? I lived on campus, um, was not in a fraternity, but but lived on campus. And they, much to my mom's chagrin, never uh, didn't go home much. I'd meet my dad at the golf course pretty often, but I never made it home. But yeah, I did the whole UT experience and again, kind of died in the wool Austin UT family. 
How do you feel, this is just a complete aside, and I would imagine your business interests probably influence this to some degree, but having grown up there when you did and seeing it really burgeon into uh, something that really most people certainly couldn't have imagined 20, but certainly 30 years ago, how does that feel? Do you feel like it's lost its kind of hometown culture or is is are there parts of it that you're like not desirable or just from a personal perspective? I think there's good and bad. You know, certainly to your point, from a business interest standpoint, it, it's great to have this much interest. I think just personally, it's also been good. I mean, you, you know, joked about the unicorn comment, but you, you certainly get to meet a lot of new folks that are moving in and and they're bringing a lot of cool, interesting aspects. You know, our, our food scene is tip top. You know, obviously we've always been live music you know, capital, live music capital in a, in a hot spot there. We get great shows. I, I think culturally we've got great stuff. We just have, you know, the, the MLS, we got our first professional sports team. UT has always sort of been the de facto professional team, but it's it's been really interesting to see Austin rally around, you know, a, a team that's not university-based in, in a, that today's, this is their inaugural year. Um, so that's been cool. So I, I think just culturally, you know, the, the amount of, of people that are coming in and the amount of activities now are, are great. Like that's, that's the positive, the, the drawback, you know, some of the, the negative, you know, the traffic's obviously not great. A lot of the, the green belt and some of the city parks and things that, you know, were super accessible are much busier and, and, you know, the lakes are busier. Just, there's just congestion, uh, on, you know, roads and waterways and everything else. But yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I think the good outweighs the bad, at least so far, you know, we've joked some, I think over the next maybe 10 years, if, if the growth trajectory continues the way that they're predicting it will, you know, I think that the jury's out for me personally. And it was like, man, 10 years from now, it, it could be, you know, too big of a city. It's certainly much bigger than, than growing up. And, and again, there's, there's good points to that, but at, at a certain level, it becomes, you know, might be too big of a city for the reasons everybody kind of moved here, but we'll be interesting to track and see how that plays out. Very interesting. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. So what team, what professional team is there again? It's uh, it's called Austin FC. It's an MLS soccer team. Okay. So they, they built a, an incredible new stadium kind of up by the domain. I think so far they've actually had the the women's national team and the men's national team have played a game there, but it's, it's an incredible facility, but it's a new, you know, the first time we've had a real, you know, sort of one of, if you consider Major League Soccer, a, a you know, high end, probably the fifth best pro league, but the, the city just really rallied around it. And you know, you've got, again, kind of talking about advertising and branding, they've created this brand out of thin air and just the whole city's rallied around it. And Every kid's walking around with an Austin FC jersey on. It's It's been pretty cool to watch. That to me is super cool. I'm just kind of laughing because when I was a kid and I grew up in the Midwest, you know, soccer, I hate to say this, but soccer was what you played if you weren't good enough at football, basketball, or baseball. And um, that's just because I'm an old man. That's a long <laughs> time ago. So I know this doesn't apply. Uh, but I love the, the fact the city's rallying around it. So what did you do? I mean, before getting into real estate, I know you were a marketing guy, but like what ultimately, what were the steps that led you to real estate? What did you do like career wise and how did all of that unfold? Sure. So, you know, high level, I went to UT, I got an advertising degree, actually moved to San Francisco, did a graduate program. I moved to Minneapolis and I was kind of doing the ad agency, you know, having a lot of fun. That's a great 
sort of career when you're young in your 20s, work hard, play hard. It's it's fun, young people. But in 2007, my dad had a, a big stroke. And so I moved home basically that day to help take care of him. Um, it was a really long recovery. And in the process, that's what got me back to Austin. I think over the, the following year, kind of realizing I was 27 at the time, realizing that I needed to create Number one, I wasn't going to leave Austin again. And I knew I, I knew I was going to move home at some point. You know, it wasn't my design to move home then or come under those circumstances for sure. But like, hey, I'm home and now I got to figure out, you know, what I want to do, but also that I needed to create some some passive income streams that just working all the time. I needed to own my time a little bit more. That ultimately is what got me into investing in real estate. And so I started out, you know, some similar to you, uh, a couple of passive investments I, I did on some local groups here. They weren't doing multifamily syndication. I don't, that thing didn't even really exist, but it was just some, some condo redevelopment infill stuff. Uh, and I started buying rental property, just duplexes and fourplexes. And you know, over probably three or four years, again, you talk about being lucky rather than good. I was buying in you know, 2009, 10, 11 in Austin, uh, fourplex properties that you know, would double in value in 18 months after, after I put a little bit of value add and money into them kind of built a a decent sized portfolio, about 75 units while I was still doing a sort of advertising marketing type job. I got an MBA when I moved back to town. I think, you know, the the confluence of having a kind of 80 unit portfolio and an MBA kind of emboldened me that, hey, this is a ton of fun. And to really make it scale, you got to do properties larger than, you know, four, six, eight at a time. And that's kind of when I transitioned and we created Wildhorn, you know, which was probably like 2015, 2016. That's a lot of, you know, it may, it may not sound like it to even you looking back because, you know, you've, you've advanced so much, but I mean, that's like while working a full-time job, you got up to like 75, 80 units. I mean, that's it, you know, while getting an MBA, like that is like super, super, super impressive. It was a busy period, you know, and I think just, it was, it, it was just, it was fun. It continues to be fun. I think you and I can the call offs. I'm staying busy and having fun. And, and I think what I've always enjoyed about real estate, I enjoyed marketing as well. It's fun, but the real estate is just, it, I enjoy it so much that it didn't feel like work. You know, and I think going up to properties and walking properties, talking to residents, just the whole, it, almost every aspect I really enjoy. So it didn't, it never feel like work. Uh, I just, I mean, I didn't have a lot of free time, but uh, it was, and now we got four kids, so I have no free time. So it's, it's all kind of the same. Wow, you have four kids. Just to backtrack on a personal thing, just because yeah. you'd mentioned, is your dad okay? Did he, did he survive? He survived, and he's he's fine. I appreciate you asking. I mean, he you know he still has deficiencies, and you know can't use use his left hand. You know, we we take him to UT football games. He's in a wheelchair and stuff like that. But he did survive, and we're certainly glad to have him. Got it. You said when you're talking about when you were at UT, you said your mom, you know, didn't you didn't come home enough, but you played a lot of golf with your dad. Were they together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, they were they were together. Uh she passed away about ten years ago, unfortunately. But yeah, they were together and you know, lived in the same house I grew up in. I just was busy and it was, you know, an extra ten minute drive to to go home. So I was go play golf and go back to campus. Well, it's just uh, curious about those details. I, I yeah. appreciate it. And so, oh, first of all, where did you live in San Francisco and who, who did you work for there? Uh, so I lived in the hate uh, when I was there and I, I went to uh, a, an ad program called the Miami Ad School, um, kind of a, a planning boot camp. I was doing account planning and ad agencies. So I, that's that's what I was doing out there. And then I, from there, I moved to Minneapolis. So did you, you know, when, when you were, well, I could say, did you, or even current, like, so when you were buying those 
quads and I'm jumping around a bit, but when you when you'd moved back to Austin um, and you said you enjoyed every aspect of it, your background was kind of like a marketing guy. How did you deal with the, you know, just the construction you know, the renovation part of it? Uh, so I had a really good sort of friend and mentor that was a realtor and he had, you know, as we, as I was moving back and I had a ton of free time initially, you know, kind of sitting in the hospital and, and working with my dad. So I'd just meet with some people running back and forth in the hospital. He, he kind of took me under his wing and said, Hey, I'll show you the ropes and kind of let me leverage his Rolodex of, of sort of contractors and handymen. So that was, that was very helpful. But, you know, even as we had the kind of larger portfolio, it was just, you got to have some key folks you can count on. I'm certainly not the most handy guy. My goal then was to make sure that the residents, you know, knew me, that I would, you know, I was kind of coming around. I mean, it was pretty rudimentary. I was collecting rent, you know, checks a lot of time in person, but if they had a problem, they would text me and I'd get right on it. And so we just had a good, a good network of sort of handyman, whether it's plumbers or just, you know, a handyman or whoever that, whatever it called for just running point and, you know, texting people in the middle of work meetings saying, Hey, can you run over here to, to this property, et cetera. And so did you have a, a pretty good grasp, even though you weren't necessarily a handyman yourself, right? Did you understand it, though, I guess, well enough to know what well, this needs to be done and, you know, enough to project manage and, and make sure things were, were being done right? Yeah, you know, and thankfully, I mean, what, what I was doing is pretty light, like, like from a value add perspective, it was pretty light. So I'd come in and, you know, people are typically there's are, you know, all of them are, are occupied or three out of the four are occupied. And come in and say, Hey, I'm, I'm your new landlord and I'm going to make some improvements and just little things like adding ceiling fans, or, you know, if they had a super old stove, I'd do that or just little things to do before it turned. And then I would sort of renovate them on a, on a term they were vacant. So initially it was, it was pretty minor. And then thankfully I never had any major, you know, kind of issues with, with residents, you know, where it is like a, an emergency. I mean, that your biggest, and this is true, even on the large properties, your biggest expense is your air conditioner. So I would always stay on top of I'd go hand deliver air filters, particularly in the summer on on like every four to six weeks, which A, would get get you inside the unit, but B, like I'm replacing those air filters. Um, That's probably what I I paid the most attention to. And if if somebody had an issue, a leak of, you know, whatever pests, you just deal with those and make sure they got addressed. Interesting. Do you still own any of those fourplexes? I don't. You know, I, I sold them kind of as we transitioned to the larger properties particularly on the sponsorship side, you know, having liquidity is, is probably your biggest challenge, you know, as you're getting the loans and needed that liquidity a, and also I just realized as we you know started doing, you know, deals two, three, four, that those things were just becoming a distraction. Energy needed to be on Wildhorn and kind of what we were doing there. And, you know, it was the first time that we had, I had, you know, raised outside dollars. So that was obviously it's a, that's a big responsibility. And so I think the combination of the two was like, we, we sold it all and did well on them, but we've liquidated all of it. And when you say we liquidated them all, did you have a partner in some of those fourplexes? No, it's just my wife and I just, that's we. Okay. You also, you were the founder of Blackwatch Tartan Property Group. What was that? That was kind of our, our entity that held all of our kind of that personal portfolio. So that was what we owned them all, all, all underneath and black watch tart and, you know, Campbell is Scottish, Scottish guard. That's where that name came from. Again, kind of can't get away from the marketing stuff. That's what that was. Well, you answered my next question, which was what is black watch tart? <laughs> okay. That's, that's kind of cool. So 
Tell me about Wildhorn. You said started in 15. You know, clearly you realized there were economies in in multifamily. How was that birthed and kind of like what was the first foray into that? How did going big multifamily, like operationally or any, however you would answer it, how was it different and or the same from, you know, smaller unit count buildings? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the genesis of it was... I'm running out of bandwidth. I know I can't scale this at, you know, four units at a time. It was also really a, a kick in the pants for my wife who just kind of said, hey, you need to go do this. You're, you're sort of a, a miserable bastard was her exact quote. And you're working too much, you know, on this day job that you don't like and you're, all of your passion and energy is in real estate. So you need to go figure it, figure this thing out. This is clearly where all your, your passion lies. And so that was really, I guess, gave me the, you know, call it permission or the the kick in the pants to go figure it out. And and figuring it out was really, I, I knew bigger properties were more efficient. And again, I feel like, and maybe it's just because I wasn't in the world, but I feel like syndication today is is a much more prevalent in it. You know, there's, there's lots of people doing it. I feel like, you know, 15, 16, there weren't nearly as many people. It wasn't, there wasn't as much literature and stuff out there. What I was trying to figure out how to do was, okay, I've got to go raise money. I've never done that. The responsibility of it, which we've talked about, is is super super critical, and then just the the legality of it. How do you do it correctly? You know, understanding sort of the SEC law and what you can and can't do and can't say, and that was something that you know it, it frankly took probably a year's worth of just meetings and conversations and and tapping my network. I mean, most of my friends would joke that that I can't believe you still have a job. All you do and talk about is real estate. So it was relatively easy to sort of reposition myself as as a, a real estate guy, if you will, uh, and, and a, a multifamily person you could trust to, to put money in. But it was just a lot of hard work of, you know, I had a goal, I'd take five meetings every week, you know, whether it was a coffee or lunch or breakfast, whatever, uh, with you know somebody in my network or a potential investor to kind of tell them, hey, I've been doing this over here on my own account, and now we're I'm going to go do it larger. You know, here's the benefits of it. It's the same business plan. I think to your question about what's harder or or easier, you know, the management piece is actually easier when you get larger and you can have on-site staff. You know, and you've got dedicated folks there who you know manage the property, lease the property, maintain the property. So that that piece was easier. Uh, it was really the figuring out the logistics of how do you go structurally put things together and get people to you know sort of trust you to to raise the money and then make damn sure you know what you're doing cuz you know the responsibility of taking people's money you don't want to lose it so that that was uh that's probably what we spent most of of my energy on and i guess in that journey in that sort of year to 18 months of, of really going and figuring out how to go do the larger deals and get you know the confidence to go raise our first raise was a little over 6 million dollars getting that confidence. I, I met Reed, uh, who, you know, kind of became co-founder and he was a uh, similar story had, had done, had partnered on some larger deals, wanted to go do his own stuff. And, and as we kind of met and talked, knew, knew some mutual people, it was pretty apparent, you know, he's a structural engineer. He's a, a heck of a good underwriter. And my secret power, superpower, you can call it is, is, you know, conversing, talking to people, again, being lucky than good. I, I'm in Austin, Central Texas was, and is a great market. So it's like, I can go hustle up deals. I can go raise money. You help operate them and underwrite them. And so that's kind of how we came together in the premise of you know how we started. You got to have a team in this game. And and we were both super hungry and willing to work really hard. And and it, it took, I guess, by the time we met, probably eight months to get the first deal done. But there was you know work that we had both done prior to coming together uh, kind of on the path. 
a detail, and I'm only curious because because I have a marketing background. Obviously, that job when your mother, mother when when your wife said you're you're a miserable bastard, what job was that? That you were it was working. a good job. It was uh, I was at a kind of technology startup, sort of app developer. We were doing a lot of mobile technology, and I was a uh, I was a partner there, and I I kind of led our strategy group, so figuring out what similar to what I did in ad world, what people are you know what we should build, what the sort of user experience was going to be like. It just it was a fun job, and mobile technology, emerging technology was was great. It just was uh, it wasn't my passion. I think, I think at the end of the day, it wasn't my own. You know, and I think that the entrepreneurial bug was really kind of spitting. And I was you know come home fired up and would work you know till two a.m. on on real estate. And she was just like, "Look, yes, this is crazy." Hey, it sounds like she uh, her insight was uh, incredibly valuable. So the first deal you did, you raised six million bucks, and that that seems like a steep hill to climb, like your first deal, right? So what deal yeah. was that? How, how many how many investors did it take to get to six million bucks? How long did it take to raise, and what was the first deal? Yeah, so as a deal in San Antonio, um, actually we've, we've owned it now for a little over four years. I think that's right. Yeah. We're you know probably going to sell it here in the next 12 months. We is 192 units. It was probably larger than we initially set out to go do on a first deal. But, you know, as we, we kind of underwrote a bunch and I spent my time getting to know the brokerage community and positioning us to, to buy these type of deals, it sort of checked all of our boxes. And uh, I was like, well, this is, this is the moment. And I, you know, it was gut check time. Could we raise the money? But we'd spent a lot of time getting there. And so we, we think we had about 75 investors in that first deal. We definitely, it was not without stress and just the, hey, can we actually do it? We've had a lot of, you know, preemptive conversations and showing them, you know, sample deal and, and leveraging, you know, my portfolio and local knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely gut check time on, uh, hey, here, here it is. And, you know, the timeline, just kind of your standard your standard timeline. We had, I think, sixty days to to raise the money, and you know, from the time we got the contract awarded to us, so it was a it was a busy it was a busy time. <laughs> How did the performance early on compare to the uh, performa? It was good. Um, you know, I think luckily, n- knock on wood, we've most of our deals, all of our deals have been good. We've had one deal, I guess, two deals that you know, had sort of stubbed their toes for a variety of reasons early on. One of them, the occupancy dipped a bunch from the previous ownership. And one of them, we had a huge plumbing bill that uh, just can't underwrite too. We had a, it was a $200,000 issue to go fix and find the leak. But this first deal, it's been good. You know, We've kind of been at our pro forma rents. Obviously, the market's been really strong and you know, we stand to, to certainly meet and beat initial expectations when we go sell it uh, coming up here. Well, that sounds fantastic. On the one deal where the vacancy dropped, why did that happen? We had, frankly, we probably didn't do a good enough job of, of, of riding the, the outgoing team. They were also hiding some stuff. So they had a bunch of delinquent folks and a bunch of notices that they had sort of sat on. So the day we took over, you know, went from 92%, you had like 15 people turn in notices where they said, oh, they just told us to talk to you. And then we had a few people we had to evict. So it went from 92 to 77% occupied in a hurry. And, you know, that obviously impacts your cash flow. It, bit of a blessing in disguise because all of a sudden you got a lot of units you can go renovate really quick. So it was uh it was a bit of of, you know, the sword cut both ways, but from the get-go there we were kind of digging out of a out of a hole. I mean our our underwriting is never we're not a group that wants to come in and go take it to that 70% occupancy really quick. It's it's more sort of slow and steady on your renovations and as units turn organically we'll renovate them. So that was uh not 
not what we had underwritten to, but we've actually sold that deal as well. And, you know, it was a, it was a great outcome. We, we kind of meet and beat ex- expectations. So we, uh, we dug our way out. Is there a way just looking back, you know, just as you gain more and more experience, is there any way on that deal that you could have yeah, seen that the delinquencies existed to the extent that they did? Some of it, yes. Some of it, no. You know, if, if, if you're sitting on a bunch of stuff in a drawer, that's hard to, that's hard to know. You know, if the other group is just filing stuff away and not reporting it, some of it you can kind of see in their delinquency. I, I think, frankly, on that deal, we were with our sort of previous management company and that was, they were helping do the DD. And that was one of the reasons among others that we've transitioned. So I, I don't think a deal like that would happen, an issue like that would happen today or catch us by as much surprise just because you know, we've got a, I think a better, more qualified group. We've got a standard protocol now where, you know, every week, if not, you know, two weeks at, at most, we're getting updated rent rolls, lease trade out reports so that we're tracking along with the property, kind of how the performance is going. And then we also, we've actually gotten it a few times, so a little bit surprising, but in our contracts, we we try to put a an occupancy threshold in the contract. And we actually have a deal right now we're working on where we've been successful in getting that, where it's 95, 96%, everything's you know 98% occupied. If they drop below 92%, uh, we get a, a big credit. And it's not even necessarily about the financial credit that we'd get. It's more about they're now aware of it and they know we're watching. And they, you know, if we didn't get it in the contract, that'd be okay too, because they know that's going to be a sticking point and something we're going to watch. And you know, that the standard language is you got to operate your know, normal course of business. Well, normal course of business is you're filing. You know, you're you're doing your normal turns, and as as unit expirations are coming up, you're releasing them, and there's certain market rates you've got to hit. So if if any of that becomes out of normal. We've now have some teeth in the contract and, and we've we've kind of stood on the table a little bit as we're negotiating the contract to make sure they understand that's a that's a sticking point for us. What are things, I guess, in, in lacking that, which obviously was, was a really smart thing for you guys to implement? Could they then just be, I was going to say renting units at below market, but that's not an occupancy issue. That would just be somebody pay, putting somebody in. And even if it takes getting less rent or whatever, I guess, what would they do that would cause the occupancy to be less than 92%, I guess, as it's in contract? Just frankly, stop working. You know, I think as the team on site, if they're not being retained, they all start looking for jobs. And so they're not, they're not doing their job on site and the management team above them is not keeping their feet to the fire. You know, typically like in our, in our management agreements, there's a sale bonus to keep them incentivized. So they're going to you know, typically get sort of a two month salary at the end, but that's to ensure it's a smooth close process that you kind of keep your foot to the gas and you're not just, you know, letting go of the wheel completely uh, as you sort of go out. So there's, that's how it would happen, I guess, is just the onsite team just sort of giving up and saying, hey, we're, we're out of here in 30 days, you know, talk to the next group when they come in and, and you know, you just try to guard against that the best you can. So it seems like a, a really interesting and valuable learning experience for sure. How many units are you guys at at this point, Andrew? Uh, about 3,000. Got it. I think you guys, I think at least as of, I don't know, a year ago, I think you were, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were working at home. And so I guess what's the size of the team and is it in terms of full-time employees and is it is it all remote at this point or what is what is I guess, that infrastructure look like? Sure. No. So we've got a, an office now in Austin that we, it's kind of funny, signed, I think signed the lease in January. We sort of moved in in June. 
Obviously, COVID factors is, is a piece of that, but we've got one, two, three, four, five full-time employees, kind of a part-time admin and working on making one more hire. Uh, and we feel like actually have an offer out now. I feel like that's going to get us you know, to a point where we can stabilize for a minute, catch our breath and, and probably allow us to grow you know, another 1,500 to 2,000 units before we'd need to kind of address hiring again. You know, sounds like you're putting the uh, the blocks, the building blocks in place, and um, you have a way of quantifying that, which is outstanding. What is your investing criterion? So the, the two things that we think about the most, you know, obviously, so, so geographically, Central Texas, you know, Austin and San Antonio and kind of the all the, the towns in between. I mean, we really believe that's going to grow and be the next great sort of megaplex across the country, the Austin-San Antonio corridor. Um, that's where all of our assets are. Obviously, you know, we're from here and know the market. We feel like we've got some, some relational advantages and just local market expertise. So that, that's the big macro view. I think outside of that, you know, we're looking for locations within those cities that, that we really believe in. We're not, we're not looking for C-class deals to convert to B-class. I think that that, that's sort of a sexy title that may be a bit of a folly, particularly as we're, you know, whatever in the, the 13th inning of a, of a nine inning game in the market cycle, like a lot of those deals have traded. And if you're a, if you're a C-class deal today in Austin, you're probably a C-class deal, you know, and you're a C-class area that there's been so much investor activity that, I just don't believe that story. And and look, there's nothing wrong with C-class properties, but I think you struggle there to, to execute a value-add plan because your, your tenant base is rougher. You know, the incomes are a little bit lower. It's harder for them to you know absorb a $100 rent increase and some extra fees that are typically a part of your plan. So we're looking for kind of B-class, A-minus type locations uh, within Austin, San Antonio. So location is a big one. And then the other word that we talk about almost obnoxiously is conviction. The market is definitely tight. You know, cap rates are compressed. There's a ton of competition. I mean, the amount of, of capital and institutional capital chasing deals in Austin and San Antonio is just incredible. There has to be something about an asset or a location or a business plan, something that ha- we have extreme conviction in. And maybe that's, you know, insider knowledge about we have some major employer coming in nearby. Maybe that's some other friend of our developer who's got plans across the street. I don't know, whatever the case might be, but we've got to have extreme conviction about that. Something about that thing is like, that's the thing we're hanging our hat on there. We have, without a doubt, we're going to be able to hit this business plan, hit these rent projections, occupancy, et cetera, because we've got conviction about it. So I think those are the two things we look at really is sort of micro market location. And then what, what about it gives us conviction? In terms of like the location piece of that, what specifically does that mean? Like what constitutes a great location? You know, so typically we're looking more infill than we are path of progress. You know, so we want to see that we're already in, in a good area and it's only going to get better. Um, and I think, again, that's a little bit of that C to B class, you know, I don't, I don't want to hope the city takes a left turn and grows towards me. You know, I want to know we're sort of in it. You're certainly looking at incomes. You're looking at drivers. You know, we are looking at future development, you know, both your multi-supply, but also, you know, jobs, office, industrial. I think that, again, is part of we spend an, an inordinate amount of time talking with our other friends and other asset classes just from a, from a macro standpoint. What's happening with job relocations? What's happening with other developments so that we know what's happening. You know, we target areas where the average income is, you know, 65K plus rather than, you know, 45K plus. Again, there's a little bit more uh, resiliency, ability to sort of withstand and demand a higher quality product. 
but there, it's not necessarily a, a geography. I mean, I can, I, we could walk through a map and I could highlight, Hey, we love this pocket. We love this pocket, not as high on this pocket, but it, it's just, you know, a quality location is kind of what we're focused on. That might be great schools that might be proximate to great jobs. It might be all the above, but it's just, again, I think that local knowledge where I, we kind of know you tell me a deal and I could tell you not, we're not interested or absolutely we dig in on that. What percent of your either buildings or units, however you would define it, are in Austin versus San Antonio at this point? Uh, so we're about 60, 40 Austin to San Antonio. There's not a real mandate as far as what we need to have it or, you know, it's just where we find good opportunities. You know, I think they're, they're both great dynamic markets. They've got a little bit different trajectory and there's gas on the fire in, in Austin. It's just good, you know, solid logs on the fire in San Antonio, it's a little slower and more steady maybe, but about 60, 40 today. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, San Antonio, I guess, historically has just been really steady, hasn't come down too much in recessions, hasn't had the exuberance perhaps that Austin or Dallas or, you know, Atlanta, et cetera, Nashville has. Is that changed in the last, uh, I'll just arbitrarily say six months, just as investors are crawling all over each other to, to get yield and, and just trying to find the next great market? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. You know, you're seeing folks show up in Austin and saying, hey, I'm here to buy. And then they see cap rates and they choke and they drive an hour down the road to San Antonio. That That's definitely happening and, and is helping San Antonio. But I think San Antonio stands up in its own right. And we're really excited. You know, a couple months ago, San Antonio announced a big uh, Chamber of Commerce initiative and they, they're privately raised a fund for, to kind of Chamber of Commerce go out and recruit companies. And, you know, that's been one of the real secrets to the success Austin's had going back to sort of 1990. We've had a opportunity, Austin, you know, sort of a fund raised and donated by local businesses that's allowed us to, to kind of spend the last 20 plus years really growing and attracting a diverse employment base. And San Antonio has just hired that same consulting firm. They've announced they've got the commitments locally to fund it. And it's not a joint effort with Austin, but they're going to help overlap. And as the cities continue to grow together, it will, I think you're going to see even more job announcements, more diversity from San Antonio. It may never have the sort of sex appeal that Austin has, but it's going to be, it has been, and it will continue to be a really thriving market. And if you just follow sort of jobs and population, I mean, the, the population trajectory of just the Texas triangle, you know, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, Austin's kind of squat smack in the middle of those three is still projected to double in the next 20 years. You know, all of the growth is east of I-35 in Texas, which kind of runs, you know, San Antonio, Austin, and Dallas. So San Antonio will absolutely be a big part of, of the future of, of Texas growth, a big part of our growth. And, and we're really excited about they've, they've got the sort of the private uh, businesses behind them now to go make those recruiting pitches. It sounds uh, like super exciting and something that you kind of set your watch to. I mean, if you if you kind of judge by what's transpired over the last five, 10 years, I mean, it sounds like it's kind of a no brainer with not a lot of I mean, not a lot of things that can get in the way. Do you, Andrew, see yourself doing a fund at some point or what? I'm sure inevitably you've thought about that. And I was curious to know your take on that. It's not an immediate part of our plan. I mean, we've talked about it. I, I think that. It's funny. I think that we tend to write like an article a month and last month's article was talking about the pros and cons of it, of a fund. And we like the structure we've got. One of our sort of core values, if you will, is simplicity and doing it deal by deal keeps things simple. 
I think it also keeps a higher bar for us as operators that you know every deal has to stand up in its own right. I understand the diversification you know play, but I also know and see a lot of groups with a fund where like, hey, I just got to get money out and or I can buy a sort of subpar deal here because I'll balance it out somewhere else. So probably not just you know given some of those talking points, but you know I'll never say never. I mean, I, when I bought my first fourplex, I didn't think we'd be you know operating a five hundred million dollar business with you know assets under management. So it's not of immediate growth plan or it's not a desire of ours. It's a great answer. And a great answer on this podcast would be defined as one that, that I personally love and that, um, <laughs> the benefits of being the host, <laughs> yeah. but I, I'm glad I asked because, you know, it's a, it's a topic that's discussed and you just really kind of slap me in the face in a good way. And it, it makes sense. Cause that's my concern about investing in funds is that, you know, and yeah, diversification in case we stub our toe on one and, you know, then you don't, is that when you're just doing deal at a time, I think just human nature, unless you're just doing insane volume and you're, and you're, I don't know, and you're just trying to get act fees and all that. But, you know, if you're a good operator, I could see where it's like every deal has to be kind of, you have to, to your words, have to have that conviction around, right? And so if you're in a fund and you've got time constraints and this and that, it's an interesting way of putting it. Let's just put it that way. So in this crazy, crazy, crazy market, how do you differentiate yourself, I guess, in the broker community, you know, in terms of, you know, why, why they should, you should get the deal? I think we really believe we're in the relationship business. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the brokers are you know personal friends of ours you know predating real estate or going back to college and, and before so we've got lifelong relationships with them i think we've built a, a very good reputation as, as good buyers as local folks that you know, know what we're doing and so we will you know we'll obviously do what we say we're going to do we'll close as contracted etc but I, I think you also recognize that hey austin's super hot and it's going to be hot for some amount of time. At some point, it may cool off. But you know, guess who's going to be here twenty years from now when all the equities dried up and has moved on? Like we, I'm not moving. This is home. We're raising our kids. You know, so so that I think there's a piece of that that's helpful. But it's just you know, look, there's benefit of being local. We can go grab lunch. We can go play golf. We see each other at the swim meets. I mean, I think that 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 has real tangible benefit. And that's you know, kind of how we're able to get insight onto deals or hear about something early or, or, and it's not always just brokers, you know, just leveraging the larger community of the developer friends we have, or, you know, the, the service providers, the management companies, the whoever it is that like, you know, we will turn over every rock to try to find, get an early start on a deal that the deal we've got under contract right now, we understood the asset because we've been tracking it for a couple of years. We knew that it was sort of a fractured partnership and a management group that didn't really have their finger on the pulse. And we put a a relatively aggressive offer early in the process and were able to preempt the process. While we were negotiating the PSA, they had multiple offers come in quite a bit higher than we were and to their credit honored our deal. But we knew that, hey, if that sort of gets out to the full market, it's going to cost us, you know, well, cost is going to run two, three, maybe $4 million past where we've got it. So we paid what we think is a fair price, but a, a really good price in, in that context. And that's just having your finger on the pulse of all the assets, you know, the broker team that was that had the deal sort of reading the tea leaves and saying, hey, let, let's make a move early here. I think that was sort of relationship based that allowed us to do that. And is that one in Austin? It is. Got it. And how many units? 184. Got it. When was it built? 86. Got it. 
uh, was it, uh, probably yeah, wouldn't have been the first owner. How long had the owner owned it? These guys had only owned it for like two and a half, three years. And so we, you know, saw it last time, looked at it, liked it a lot. Then they had spent no money on it. Again, kind of a, the group that bought it, not really involved in the group that's selling it. It just, it had some, some complexities to it and they're going to do fine because Austin's you know been on a tear, but it's, they haven't sucked any of the value out, out of it. It was just, it, it kind of made sense for us all the way around. And are you saying that the biggest reason or one of the bigger reasons is that the partnership kind of blew up? I think that's one of the reasons they're selling it now. And I also think it's it's one of the reasons we felt like we could move early. So the group that was sort of calling the shots is out of state, you know, had we kind of heard that, hey, they they just sort of signed the listing agreement. They didn't negotiate. They just sort of signed the the, the marketing materials. They just agreed to everything. They're not they're not they're on the pulse of things. And so we kind of you know kept gathering that info and said, well, hey, what happens if we offer you know a, an aggressive number now? I said, well, look, we'll submit it. And you know, I think people try that a lot, but you've got to pick your spots and know which deals that would go. And they said, hey, that's great. We'll absolutely sell it to you. And again, some of our reputation and things helped close it. But we got out in front of it and absolutely. I mean, the way that we're seeing things move right now, it, it's safe to say it probably trades, you know, a minimum of $2 million and I think maybe could be $4 million higher than our contract price. Yeah, that sounds exciting. That's awesome. How many partners were there in, in that with the previous sellers? It's two main ones, so two different groups. I mean, I don't know how many partners or sort of exact sources of equity, but there were kind of two different groups uh, that were involved with it. Very interesting. What would you say are, you know, kind of like key lessons you've learned in the last, you know, if you started it in 15, the last six years? I mean, there's been a ton, obviously, just on the business side. I I think, and maybe it's easier to sort of think through, you know, kind of how we think about our sort of, you know, I'll call them company values, because it's a lot of these are from lessons we've learned. But, you know, number one, you know, we talk about doing good like just be good people, be kind people, but we're doing good, you know, for our investors. We want to make the right decisions for our residents. You know, we're, we're not a massive institutional private equity firm with no heart. You know, so if we have a, a, a winter storm, which we had, you know, we're going to send a bus over to our asset that has no power and paid for people to go to the warming huts. You know, we're, we're just going to, we're going to do the right thing for, you know, our residents, our investors, our team. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a lesson learned, but sort of a core principle, you know, have fun. I think we let off the call talking about that. I'm having fun. The team has fun. This is a can be a, a, a challenging business, but having fun is is important. Be simple. Talked about that as well. That's like the answer to why not have a fund. You know, let's not overcomplicate things. You know, you look at our waterfall structure, um, and this is absolutely, I think, a lesson learned that you get overly complicated. It gets a it gets less fun, but it's it's hard to explain. If you can't explain it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. So so be simple. Don't overcomplicate things. Think long term. And again, that's we've talked about that. We're going to be here in twenty years. We're, we want to build long term relationships with investors. You know, with brokers. We're not looking at these deals as eighteen months. How can I get in and get out? You know, we're buying in locations we believe in for the long term. We believe Austin will continue to grow for the long term. There's an interesting stat that Austin has doubled in population every 20 years, going back 200 years. And so it, it's, we're not doing anything here that we haven't historically done. It's just a lot more on the radar. And then the, the zeros are bigger as we go from two to four million people. That'll, that's a lot of people. But we believe in the market long term. And so every decision we make is kind of guided by that. And I think that that's an important thing You know that we talked about being relationship oriented. That's Again, not necessarily a lesson, uh, but something that that we believe we're in the relationship business. You know, building the relationships across the board is really important. To how we conduct our business, 
And then the last one is be transparent. So don't hide things. You know, we, we pride ourselves on our investor communications and making sure that comes out monthly, that you can tell we've got our finger on the pulse of things, that it's not just a machine spitting out a report, but there, hey, there's, there's some color here. We know what's happening. If we got bad news, if we get a $200,000 plumbing leak, we're going to tell you about it. You know, it's, you're our partner as much as, as you're an owner in the deal as much as we are. And, you know, it's important to be transparent. And I think, you know, some of those are definitely from lessons learned. Luckily, we haven't had any super painful lessons. You know, we've been in a great market, but I think operating under those principles helps from having really expensive, painful lessons. I got it. Well, this has been a very, very enjoyable conversation, and I, and I love your focus and, and your perspective, and um, you'll continue to do great things. How, Andrew, would one get a hold of you? Uh, it's pretty simple. You know, Wildhorn Capital, we've got a website. It's, it's www.wildhorncap.com. You can go on there. You can email me. I'm Andrew at wildhorncap.com. And we've got, you know, LinkedIn, social, uh, Facebook, kind of all the social media, but the website or email is probably the easiest. Got it. Again, you know, keep, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Well, I, I have, do have one more question and I, I think I know the answer, but I'll just ask it anyway. I guess just with just the gridlock in the market and you've really done a great job articulating kind of how you're navigating within that challenging environment with all the money. Have you thought about or would you entertain other asset classes? And if so, which would it be? Yeah, th- you know, I think we're open to it. And as, as we've thought about our you know, future growth, I think what we really believe in, back to the conviction word, we, we've, we're convicted that Central Texas is our home, that we have the best knowledge and relationships here, and that we are more grow into other asset classes you know, organically you know, here in, in Austin or Central Texas than we would be to go you know, try to build out our platform in Atlanta or Phoenix or somewhere. So probably similar to the fund, we're absolutely open to it, and I, and I and maybe different from the fund. We believe it will happen. You know, we're going to stumble into a really interesting piece of dirt that should be developed, or an office opportunity through a friend that you know makes sense, and get an office partner to help us navigate. But you know, I, I think we're we're certainly open to that, and it likely will happen. It'll be organic, just because we're here locally making relationships and you know drinking four coffees a day with people. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it it'll just it'll happen when it happens. That was kind of a weird thing to ask a question after uh, the final question, but that's another thing I'm guilty of doing. Uh, (laughs) Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and and doing this with me and I will be in touch and, you know, more investing and all that stuff. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, This was was a lot of fun. Yep. You got it, Andrew. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 